I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to read uh, the passage that we want to look at this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run the race with excuse me, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For you have not resisted, not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. For God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For all discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray as we gather around your word as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to hear from you through the pages of Scripture. We need your Spirit to illuminate your Word, to give us understanding, to convict our hearts, to empower obedience, and to bring transformation in our lives. Father, I pray that you would meet us now in the text of Scripture. With the psalmist, we would pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my father was a marathon runner, and in fact, uh, one of my earliest memories thinking back to childhood was going to these races that he would do, and sometimes they were far away, sometimes they were nearby, and I can remember as a kid with my brother sitting on this sidewalk waiting, all these runners coming by and waiting for the one to come by that we recognize as dad would come by in his race. But as a kid, I used to wonder, growing up in that home, why on earth anyone would want to run that far. I mean, that's a lot of work, and that's a long way, 26.2 miles. But, you know, for my dad, that wasn't enough. Uh, His claim to fame was that he ran 40 miles on his 40th birthday, if you can believe that. And uh, I, of course, didn't run with him. I rode the bike. I was the water boy. I'd hand him his water when he needed that. And then I kind of jogged in the last mile or two with him. He had planned the course so that it ended right in front of our house. And uh, as he came around the corner, uh, there were not thousands that were cheering. It was like, uh, you know, a few neighbors in our family. But we were proud of Dad as he crossed the finish line. And one of the things I, I just, I remember to this day, that as he crossed the finish line, he was not even breathing hard. It's like, how on earth do you do that? Well, the answer is endurance. Endurance. Endurance is the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. That's endurance. Now, how many of you this morning here are sleep deprived because you've been staying up way too late to watch the Olympics? Anybody doing that? Uh, my family and I have really enjoyed the Winter Olympics. I think it was just a few days ago that uh, the women's Nordic team speed ski race or something like that, they won a gold medal for the first time. It was two girls. You see that? Um, Jessica Diggins and Kinkin Randall. And did any of you watch that race? 
you know, they're coming up the hill around the bend. They got two trailers, two other athletes coming. There's three of them there. And it's just everything she could give to cross the finish line, push her ski out, and then she collapses. And she was there on the snow, what seemed like forever. Total, complete exhaustion. How does somebody do that? The answer is endurance. And the Bible regularly equates the believer's life to that of a long-distance race or an athletic competition. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews before us, one of the author's main goals is to exhort the readers to press on, to endure, to persevere in the race. And his point is that all believers, like marathon runners, need endurance also. In the analogy, the, the, the main danger in the Christian life, in the Christian race, is to drop out, to not finish the race, to, to quit before the finish line. And of course, for the professing believer, quitting the race basically means you fall away from the faith. You abandon Christianity. You stop believing in Jesus. And if you know the book of Hebrews, there's a couple of sections in there when the author is very serious about his warning of the believers that they not fall away. And because of persecution and cultural pressure and the ridicule of fellow Jews, many of the Jewish Christians who are addressed in this book of Hebrews were tempted to quit, to drop out of the race, and to return to Judaism. In fact, the writer of the book is clear back in chapter 3, verse 12, when he says this, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, to be clear, when the Bible talks about falling away from faith, as it does in this passage, it does not indicate a loss of salvation. We understand from the scriptures that true salvation can never be lost. Rather, when someone who professes Christ falls away from the faith, it's actually a proof that their salvation was never genuine to start with. But nonetheless, all believers are exhorted to persevere in the faith, to keep on believing, to keep on enduring, to abide in the vine, to continue in the things that we've learned and become convinced of. A true believer is one who endures. Now, though we live in a very different culture and time in history, the possibility of falling away from faith is still very much a clear and present danger, isn't it? And where we live in the South, you live in the South, in North Texas, I live in the South, we call that the Bible Belt. And in the Bible Belt, we may not be tempted necessarily to turn to some false religion or something like that, But the danger in our time is that many will profess faith in Christ, but they will deny him by their deeds. I call that Bible Belt Christianity. And according to this verse, we understand that to profess Jesus, but then to deny him or to fall away, means that we lack true faith. We lack true conversion. We are nothing more than counterfeits or fake Christians. And unlike the audience of Hebrews, we may not be threatened today like by a perverse Greek culture or an oppressive, persecuting Roman government or a corrupt uh, Jewish religious system, but there are clear 21st century threats to endurance. And I hope that you're aware of this. There are things going on in our culture that threaten the endurance of the Christian What are some of those threats to endurance? Well, think with me for a moment about some threats to endurance that we would might face today. Distractions. I mean, be honest. Are you distracted by your hobbies? By social media? By sports? By entertainment? Your children's activities? We can be distracted by social media. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13? That the cares of this world, the distractions of this world can actually choke the word so that true conversion doesn't happen. That's a danger. Distractions. Or how about this? The love of comfort and ease. 
We want a pain-free, problem-free life. And yet Romans 8 verse 17 says that we are fellow heirs with Jesus if we suffer with him. Busyness, exhaustion, always being tired. And yet Jesus told Martha in Luke chapter 10, there's only one thing needful, isn't there? To walk with God, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Trials and hardship, a broken marriage, wayward children, being abused, being burned by a church. And again, Jesus in Matthew 13 says, the, it's the scorching sun of affliction that can kill the word. So that again, conversion does not happen. Cultural pressure, the beginning of persecution. If we're looking around, there are all sorts of threats, things that would blow us off the rails in our faith. Now, distance runners know that there are physiological signs that you're beginning to run out of energy, to to struggle in endurance. Things that happen. In fact, if you talk to a marathon runner, they'll talk about hitting the wall. That's the point where the lactic acid builds up in your body and everything just hurts. And your body screams, please stop. But there are spiritual signs that fatigue is setting in too. Think with me about some symptoms of spiritual sluggishness, spiritual danger, things like prayerlessness, a dwindling effort exerted towards spiritual health, a tolerance of sin, a lessening uh, effort in evangelism and ministry, growing in comfort with, grow, a growing comfort with worldliness, a cold heart toward the things of the Lord. When you open the Bible in the morning to do your quiet time, to do your Bible reading plan, and we forget that's actually a time when God is going to communicate to me. And I just go through the routine. Or slacking in personal and corporate worship. Think about it. Most runners, when they're sitting at the start gate and they get on in the race, they're not saying at that point, you know, I'm thinking about quitting this thing. Everybody that starts wants to finish the race, but not everybody does. And that's why I think as we come to this chapter in the book of Hebrews that we need to really hear the message. We need to understand how important it is to endure and to learn what we can to ensure that endurance Can I ask you a question? Are you behind in the pace? Are you sluggish in the race? Are you weary and do you feel like quitting? Then this text is certainly for you. We need to heed the words of this text. I hope in our time together as we look at these verses that I've just read, that we will see um, some helps to endurance. Look back at verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Here it is. And let us run the race of endurance. That's the main exhortation. That's the main command of this section. Whatever circumstances of your life look like, endure, hold up, bear out in your relationship with Christ as you face that difficulty. And as we unpack this text together, I would like you to find with me five commitments to endure in the race. Five commitments to endure in the race, to finish the course, to complete this life in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus in that way. Look at the first commitment as we see it together in verse 1. The first commitment, and is this, remember faithful believers who have gone before us. Remember faithful believers who who have gone before us. Look back at verse 1 with me. Therefore, since we also have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. We'll just stop right there. Notice that our chapter here starts with a therefore. And that points us back to the previous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the great hall of faith, or the, the roll call of faith. And I'm sure you're familiar with it as I am Uh, Old Testament believers and their faith exemplified the trials, the difficulty that they went through. We, We look at that and we learn of men like Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel. And even allusions to others like Daniel who shut the mouth of lions, the text tells us. 
And the writer here says that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Well, we don't have any evidence from Scripture that the Old Testament believers are sitting up in the sort of celestial grandstands of heaven looking down and and having a knowledge of that. Um, That's probably not what's intended here. What our writer means by witnesses is that through the testimony of their lives, as we read them in the pages of Scripture, those faithful men and women testify to us as witnesses of endurance in the faith. They demonstrate it. They encourage us by their example. And we're surrounded by that. That's why we have a wonderful message in the Old Testament to learn from those men and women. And we learn as, as, we, as we get to know those faithful men and women of old and who endured hardship by faith and persevered in their Christian walk, that provides motivation then for our endurance. We learn that endurance is possible. We read some of the things in the Old Testament. We go, you know what? Well, maybe, maybe my circumstances aren't quite as hard as what that guy went through. We're encouraged by that. We learn from others how to endure. We see God work in amazing ways as we look at those examples. And we see the faithfulness of the Lord himself to ensure the uh, endurance of his children. And as you read through your Bible, and I hope you are, are you reading through your Bible? As you're reading through your Bible, as you get up in the morning or in the evening or when you do it, look for those examples. Paul told the Corinthians that those things were written for our instruction. And the writer to Hebrews says part of what we're supposed to gain from those examples is to be encouraged and to be instructed by their endurance. I would also say at this point, one thing that's been very helpful to me as I've thought about this in my own life is how I have been encouraged reading Christian biographies. Anybody do that? You guys read Christian biographies? I have been so encouraged in my walk with God, reading about men like John Calvin and Martin Luther, George Whitfield, Richard Baxter, Jonathan Edwards, John Patton. And even uh, uh, several years ago, read uh, a more recent biography by our own state senator back in Texas, a man named Brian Birdwell, who was in the Pentagon during 9-11 and was burned over 75% of his body. Is a wonderful testimony of faith in Christ and endurance through that uh, horrific trial. And when you read biographies, you'll, re- you'll read about men like William Tyndale, who was strangled and burned at the stake. You say, why would, why would that happen to him? What, what was the great crime that he committed? What was it? He translated the Bible into English. And the Church of England had him strangled and burned. It's recorded his last words as they were coming to kill him. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And we read about that. We say, I want to have a faith like that. I want to be able to endure like that. Or John Bunyan, probably most of you know of John Bunyan, the the Puritan Baptist pastor who spent 12 years in prison. He had a brand new wife. His previous wife had died and the the stress of his imprisonment was so stressful, his new wife actually miscarried. He had four other children and one of those four, a daughter, was blind and he often wrote in his journal how he agonized to see his daughter. And you know what the crazy thing is? Bunyan could have walked out of that prison any day that he wanted to as long as he committed to never preach, which he refused to do. And through the course of actually two different imprisonments, he produced the most popular book ever read next to the Bible itself. What is it? Pilgrim's Progress. We read men like that, women of faith, and we are encouraged to endure in our race. That's our author's point, to, to, to think about those faithful believers that have gone before and to be encouraged So that's number one, our commitments to endure in the race. Remember faithful believers who have gone before us. Second commitment, to endure in the race. We see it also in verse one. Look at with me again. Second commitment is this, remove all hindrances to endurance. Remove all hindrances to endurance. Verse one, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. He says, lay it aside, put it off. And he gives us two areas that we need to put off, two areas that we need to lay aside. 
The, the first area is highlighted by this little word encumbrance. Encumbrance. That word means bulk or weight. And it refers to the reality, thinking about athletics now, thinking about a race, it refers to the reality that athletes have to be in shape in order to compete. They're not overweight. They're not carrying extra pounds that could inhibit their performance. Now, I know what we're thinking about right now, the Winter Olympics, certainly. But think back a couple of years to the Summer Olympics and the distance running events, okay? And um, do those, you picture a distance runner. I mean, do they look like they've been eating way too many Cinnabons? I mean, is that, is that what you think? We think distance runner? No, these guys are lean and mean and fit. And you may, you may not be a distance runner physically, but spiritually, we all need to be in shape for the race. That's our author's point. We need to get rid of the extra spiritual weight that inhibits our endurance. He notes a second area. Look with me. Also, put off, lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. And this pictures the removal of superfluous clothing and other items that would keep an athlete from running freely and smoothly. And again, you know how this works. We've seen it in the Winter Olympics, just like the Summer Olympics. Athlete shows up. He's wearing some sort of um, you know, athletic apparel, you know, uh, um, pants and a coat, you know, a nice athletic thing, USA. And he's got you know, the $3,000 Bose Bluetooth you know, extra bass uh, radio system going on there. And he's just jamming to his tunes, right? And then when the race starts... Where's the clothes? Where's the Bose headset? Where is it? He's laid it aside, hasn't he? And now he's in his racing suit and his racing cleats or whatever the race is and they're on the blocks and now those things have been laid aside so they will not inhibit the race. That's our author's point. So let's, let's think about this now in a spiritual sense, can we? What are the areas of your life that are inhibiting you in the race? Do you know what those areas are? What are those things that you struggle with that keep you from reading your Bible? They keep you from ministering the local church. They trip you up in terms of temptation and sin. Do you know what those areas are? Our author is calling us to take an inventory, to think about that, and and to identify those areas and to commit, by God's grace and help, to put those things aside so that we can endure. In fact, I'd, I'd encourage you, if you feel like you're drifting, if you feel like you're, you're sluggish in the race, um, as a pastor, I'm convinced that most believers know or they have a knowledge of the things that trip them up. They really do. They just don't get serious about getting rid of those things. And I want you to see that the danger of that, according to this text, the danger is if we don't put those things aside, we may not finish. So we need to take that seriously. You know, think, think, of a, think of a diagnosis of having a malignant tumor. And it's treatable, right? You can do something about it. But what happens if you ignore the tumor? What happens? It gets bigger, it takes over, and probably eventually kills you. And there are, there are so many professing Christians that have spiritual tumors, if you will, that are growing. They know they're there and they refuse to do something about it. Please don't do that. Heed the author's admonition. Let's identify those things. Put them off so that they don't inhibit the race. Treatment is available if we turn to Christ in repentance. So our first commitment to endure us is to remember faithful believers that have gone before us. The second one is to remove all hindrances to endure us. Number three, the third commitment, rivet our eyes on Jesus. Number three is rivet our eyes on Jesus. Look at verse two with me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The text here tells us to fix our eyes. We want to focus our spiritual gaze on the Lord Jesus And our author here gives us two specific areas of Jesus' life and ministry that we ought to focus on, that we ought to put our our spiritual attention toward. Uh, Look with me at that first area. The first area of focus that our author calls us to focus on 
is Jesus' roles as originator and perfecter of faith. His roles as the originator and perfecter of faith. And these, these ensure our endurance. Look with me. It says there, he, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. That word author means originator or founder of our faith. Now think with me for a minute. If you're a Christian, where did you get your faith? Where'd you get it? You go to Costco? You know, did you drum it up? No, the, the Bible tells us in texts like Ephesians chapter 2 that the whole package of salvation, including faith itself, is a gift of God's grace to us. Jesus is the founder, the originator of our faith. It is his gift granted to the believer. You don't earn faith or produce it or manufacture it. It is God's gift to you. It is his doing in you. And brothers and sisters, can you be encouraged in that? Because the same God who grants you the gift of faith, who grants you the gift of salvation, promises to complete the work that he started, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 1 says that he will complete the work that he started in you. He will guard it. He will keep it. He will protect it. He will preserve it until glory. The scriptures are clear. We can be encouraged that Jesus will complete the work that he started. But he's not only the the author of faith, the originator of faith. We notice also here, according to our text, he's the perfecter of faith. The perfecter. What does that mean? He is the one who completes your sanctification. And our author tells us here to rivet our eyes on him by remembering this point. That your salvation is his work. Because he knew you beforehand. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He redeemed you. He adopted you in his family. He reconciled you to God. He will sanctify you. And one day, yes, he will glorify you. That that wonderful golden chain from Romans 8 cannot be broken. Our salvation is secure because Jesus initiates it and he completes it. And one day he will take us home to be with himself. This is his work. And if you are discouraged, would you hear the message and the hope that is in this reality? On those days when you feel like quitting, on those days when you feel like that trial is too difficult, when you say, I'm not sure how long I can keep doing this, remember, he will complete the work that he started in you. He will finish it. He will complete it. He will sanctify you and one day glorify you. And we take encouragement in that. This is ultimately his work. And our author says, fix your eyes on that. Rivet your spiritual gaze on that. Jesus starts it. He will finish it. He, listen, he ensures your endurance if you belong to him. Be encouraged in that, brothers and sisters. Okay, so we're going to think back and remember those who have gone before us. We're going to remove any hindrances. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we're going to focus, as we saw in that first area, um, on his authorship of our faith and completion of our faith. But there's a second area that we want to rivet our eyes on or fix our eyes on. It's in the next part of the verse. The second area, our author says, is focus on his redeeming work of salvation. His redeeming work of salvation as an example of endurance. Look, at the, look back at the text. It says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Now think with me. Jesus, in his life and ministry here on earth, and this is really quite astounding, and this is why our author wants us to think about this. Jesus, in his ministry on earth, in his humanity, was tempted to quit. Jesus was tempted to quit. That's what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He was tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. You remember that when the devil went and tempted him in the wilderness? Tempted him to quit, to give up his work here of redemption? 
The Pharisees came at him, it seems like every day, challenging him, rebuking him, correcting him. No doubt he was tempted to quit. His own disciples for crying out loud. They, they didn't get it. They were slow. They were disobedient. They were talking about who's going to sit on the right, who's going to sit on the left, and missing the whole point. Jesus was tempted to quit. And that culminates in the garden the night that he would be betrayed when he prays to his father, if my father, if possible, would you let this cup pass? That's Jesus saying, is there any other option? Do I have to go through this? And yes, we know his wonderful conclusion, yet not my will, but yours be done. And he gets up and he goes back to the sleeping disciples and they come and arrest him and he goes to the cross. Our author wants us to think about the example of Jesus in his redeeming work. Notice this key phrase, looking back at the text, he endured the cross. And I think that we are, we are tempted to read right over that, aren't we? And yet our author says, that's the meditation. That's what we need to focus on. Listen to a medical doctor's description of what that means that he endured the cross. Listen to this from a medical doctor. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin uh, and Caiaphas, the high priest. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when he questioned Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they passed and they spat on him and they struck him in the face. In the early morning, Jesus, battered, bruised, and dehydrated, and exhausted from a sleepless night, is taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress of Antonia. And it was there, in response to the cries of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to be scourged and crucified. Preparations for the scourging are carried out. The prisoner, listen to this, this is our Lord. He's stripped of his clothing. His hands are tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire steps forth with a flagrum in his hand, a short whip consisting of several heaving leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, his back and his legs. The small balls of lead first produce deep bruises which are then broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in the... Uh, opportunity that he, uh, of mocking him for claiming to be king. They throw a robe across his shoulders, place a stick in his hand for a scepter. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with th- long thorns is pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers, soldiers take the stick from his hands and strike him across the head driving their thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots, to blood and to serum in the wounds and its removal, just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage causes excruciating pain, almost as though he were being whipped again and the wounds again begin to bleed. The heavy beam of the cross is then tied across his shoulders and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves and the execution detail begins its slow journey. The weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by the copious blood loss is too much. Jesus stumbles and he falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the, soldier, of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. At Golgotha, the beam is placed in the ground and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression in the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wooden iron nail through the wrist 
deep into the wood and quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful to not pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexing and movement. The beam is then lifted up in place on top of the stipes and the reading above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed into its place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended and toes down. A nail is driven into the arch of each. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over his muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward, hanging by his arms. The pectoral muscles are paralyzed. The intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside, but spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as the tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in his chest as the pericardium slowly begins to fill with serum, beginning to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into tissues. The tortured lungs are making frantic effort to grasp even small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissue send their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissue. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nails, straightens his legs, takes a deep breath, and utters his seventh and final cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He endured the cross. But his horrific as the physical suffering that he endured, made so clear by this medical doctor. That was not the real agony, friends. The real agony as he hung on that cross is that he bore the very wrath of God that sinners deserved. And at the the last moment, he cries out, My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? That's a a horrible cry and, and something that even theologians don't quite understand as he bore the wrath of God, as he made atonement for sin, as he was that propitiation, that that sacrifice that was made. He endured the cross. And notice looking back at the text. He despised the shame, it tells us. He was unafraid of the shame and the humiliation. He endured it. He didn't quit. Brothers and sisters, this is the greatest example of endurance ever seen. He endured the cross. How did he do it? How did he endure the cross in this amazing, amazing act of redemption? Look back at the text. It was joy. It was joy. Do you see that? It was for the joy set before him. The text tells us that he endured the cross. It was joy. You say, what was that joy? It was the overwhelming delight of completing the Father's will by accomplishing the work of redemption so that God and sinners can be reconciled. One commentator put it like this, his joy is the joy of heaven over every sinner who repents and returns to the Father's home. His joy is the joy over every lost sheep that is found and over every son that was dead and is alive again. That was his joy. That's what caused him to endure the cross, to finish the race, to endure the suffering, to persevere through the torture. And after rising triumphantly from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of his father, having completed the work. And we say, hallelujah, what a savior. 
who would do that for us. Friends, would you endure for a Savior who did this for you? Would you endure affliction, persecution, trial for his name in light of this example, in light of this amazing uh, work of love and grace? Would you gladly die for the one who died in your place? The joy of honoring him is our motivation to endure. If you miss everything else about this, that's the point. The joy we have in living for him, in honoring him, in living to please him and to glorify him is the secret to endurance. That's what we're supposed to see. Do you delight, can I ask you, do you delight to do the will of your father? Do you love to honor the Savior? Is your greatest desire to know him and to make him known? And the text tells us we must actually linger a little longer here. Look at the fourth commitment to endurance. The fourth commitment. We can't get off this point. The author says this. Well, since we're on that subject, now rehearse in our minds Christ's endurance through, our, through hostility. Rehearse in our minds Christ's endurance through hostility. Verse 3. Here's another exhortation. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, linger a little longer and consider. That word means to reason with careful deliberation, to meditate on, to dwell on it, to study it. It is not enough simply to hear what Jesus suffered for you. We need to meditate on it. We need to think about it. We need to rehearse it in our minds, especially, listen, in our day of hardship when we're struggling to endure. That's when we need to meditate on the cross As Isaac Watts wrote, we need to survey the wondrous cross, don't we? That's why we do communion. Communion is a regular reminder to meditate on the cross and his work. That's by God's genius design because that's one of the keys to endurance. And when you intentionally think about his endurance through suffering and hardship, his hostilities, the persecution and affliction that he endured, what does the text say? You will not grow weary and lose heart. That's a promise. And that's the key. As we meditate on the work of the cross, on this amazing Savior, the text tells us we will not grow weary and lose heart. We will find in that moment an unexplainable ability, even a supernatural resolve to endure so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. And on those days when it's just too hard and you're ready to give up and you're ready to quit, remember this next verse. Look at verse four. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, but he did. That's actually a medical condition called hematodroisis, where the capillaries um, in the sweat glands burst, mixing blood with sweat. And we know that that happened to our Lord in his striving toward obedience for the joy set before him. And if that's what our Savior did, brothers and sisters, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us we can go to him to his throne of grace, right? And receive mercy and grace for help in our day of need. What a savior who endured, who can help us. There's one final commitment that I want you to see. A key to endurance. It's in this section, verses four to 11, and I'm not gonna be able to do justice to this. There's too much here, but I want you to see the big picture because the big picture of this text is connected to this whole part of endurance. We think of this as a section about discipline and it has something to do with parenting, you know, when when you're disciplining your child and your son says, this is not joyful, dad, this is sorrowful. And you say, well, yeah, all discipline for the moment, not joyful and sorrow. Of course it is. But this isn't a parenting verse, although it applies to that. This is a verse that really uh, helps us to think about endurance. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Look at this text. It is for discipline that you endure. There's the connection to to verse 1. 
God deals with you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Watch this. So that we may share in his holiness. For all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now what does this section have to do with endurance? As I said, we won't have time to unpack it. But let me give you a hint. The point of this section is to explain why endurance is necessary. You ever wonder that? Why doesn't Jesus save us and then just launch us right to heaven? Okay? Well, there's evangelism. That's a very important reason why we're here. But this text gives us another reason. Why should we want to endure? And the answer of this section is this. We need training. We need training. We are not yet what we should be. The reason that God prescribes hostility and hardship and hurts and calls us to endure is because we are not yet fit for heaven. We need training. We need changing. We need to be sanctified. We need to be molded more into the image of Christ. Look at verse 7. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. Now that word discipline, part of the reason people don't understand that is that word discipline means training. It's for training that we need to endure. We should endure through hardship because we need to be trained in godliness. But for that to happen, listen, for that to happen, something life-changing needs to occur. We need to change our perspective. We need to reinterpret our hardships. So on on, uh, the sermon outline there, the last commitment to endurance is this. We need to reinterpret our hardship as God's purposeful fatherly training. We need to reinterpret our hardship as God's purposeful fatherly training. Do you see that? The hostility, the hardship, the hurts that that we meet in life are actually part of God's spiritual fitness plan to train us to maturity, to godliness, to Christ-likeness. Hardship, hurts, and hostility are the tools he uses to train us and shape us into the image of Jesus. And the picture here, notice the picture. It's not of a tyrant coach, you know, some basketball coach, veins are popping out, and he's yelling and screaming at everybody. No, the picture here is of what? A wise, caring father who is ministering. Verse 7, God deals with you As sons, his purposes are good. He disciplines us or trains us, even sometimes uses the rod, the spiritual rod on us for our good. Why? Look at what it says. So that we might share in his holiness. This is the perspective we need to have. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And when you're in the middle of hostility and hurts and hardship, you're not, you're not saying, oh, this is really fun. You're saying, this is not joyful. It's sorrowful. But in that moment, this text tells us, remember the purpose reinterpret that hardship as your caring, loving, heavenly Father's training for your good and for your holiness and for your righteousness. Look at what it says. Afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to grow practically in your life in righteousness? And if you do, guess what? God's got a fitness plan for you. He has a training protocol, and it's called hardships, hostility, and hurts. But we want to reinterpret those things as his kind fatherly training so that we can enjoy his own holiness that his training plan produces. We will not endure unless we begin to view the hardships of our life as God's purposeful fatherly training 
which ensures our endurance. Do you see it? You see that connection? Many years ago, uh, when one of my boys was real little, like a toddler, I don't remember how old he was. He, he's grown up now. He's eight. Uh, at least he thinks he's grown up. Uh, we had to go to the doctor, and he had some sort of infection. I don't even remember what it was now, but I, I remember how it went. And, um, you know, he's too young to understand. You know, you got this infection, son, you need to have a shot. And he was not happy about that at all. He's screaming, he's crying. My, my wife and I had to hold him down so that that pediatric nurse could stick that needle into his flesh. He's crying, he's screaming. And in the midst of it, he says this, Dad, I thought you loved me. How do you explain how a shot works to a two or three year old? You can't. But in that moment, he was interpreting the hardship that I was imposing on his life as a lack of my care or even a lack of love toward him. And I wonder how many times does our Heavenly Father think of us like that? He's bringing some hardship in our life to do good. He's bringing some trial in our life to help us, to make us more holy, to make us more like Christ. And we're saying, no, you don't love me. We need to learn to reinterpret the hardship of life as God's wise, fatherly training plan. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that you're fighting against the very things that God is wanting to do in your life to make you more holy, to make you more righteous when he intends those things for your good? Brothers and sisters, we have need for endurance. Let us draw close to Christ and run with perseverance this race that is set before us as we fix our eyes on him, as we meditate on him, as we think about what he's doing in our hardship, as we think of those wonderful testimony of witnesses that have gone before us. May God give us the grace to endure for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray. We don't think about life this way. When hardship comes, we want to fight. We wonder where you are, what you're doing. Lord, would you give us eyes to see that you're working in our life for good, that the Lord Jesus Christ is ensuring our endurance, and yet he's, he's fitting us for heaven through trial and hardship. Might we draw near to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him endured the cross. And as we draw near to him and meditate on him and look for grace and mercy to help in him, would you help us to endure for your honor and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.